amen. Wow, what an amazing day this is. In addition to church online, it's the first time we're holding in-person worship services in more than six months, which at times have felt like six years. And really, not much has happened, right? Other than that we've learned about a virus that we had never heard of before. Schools and universities closed and sent their kids home. The economy got turned off, churches had to close, some mandatorily, but many of us just voluntarily in an effort to do our part to cut the spread. Racial tension spiked to fevered pitches, surpassing any that I can remember in my lifetime. A political candidate and his running mate on one side were selected, after which both sides began throwing punches at each other. And these next 50 days promise never-ending scorched earth tactics between both parties. But at least in the midst of the tumult, faith bridgers and Christians all across the nation have, have risen above the fray and subjugated their ideological and political differences, locking arms around Jesus, working to extinguish the hateful fires burning across our land and reaching out with hearts full of love and hands eager to serve this world that's crumbling around us, right? I don't know. I'm concerned that many Christians have plunged headlong into lobbing their own hateful hand grenades, if not in person, at least through social, right alongside the next person in our hopeless world. And if that concerns me, I'm sure that our Lord Jesus, who prayed in John 17 that we would stay banded together, unified around him, rising above all the world's divisive banter, I'm sure that he's even far more concerned than I am, which makes our text today particularly relevant as we continue our journey through this letter written to the Christians by James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. So turn to chapter 3, and as you do, I'll explain the context of what was going on. See, the believers that he was writing all around Asia Minor, they, they'd been doing their own lashing out at one another with their own tongues. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, what is the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at the evil desires at war within you? Oh, see, Christians were gossiping, they were lying, they were destroying one another with their tongues back then, just like some are today. So James was writing this letter to remind Christians, hey, you know something? Real faith isn't just paying lip service to Jesus. If you've really surrendered yourself to him, your life has to reflect it in a faith that works. And in chapter three, he starts talking about our mouths, our tongues. So if you're a note taker, here's the first of three things he's gonna tell us today. Number one, though it's small, your tongue determines where you'll go. Look at, <clears throat> starting in verse two, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who's never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Though they're large and driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants it to go. What's a ship's rudder 
have in common with a little piece of metal in a horse's mouth called a bit? Well, I learned something about a bit as a fourth grader when I went to my friend Paul's ranch for a weekend. They had some horses and so we went riding and after about five or 10 minutes of slow walking, Paul asked the man who was riding with the two of us, can we please trot now? And the man looked at me and said, you up for going a little faster? And I said, okay, though I didn't really mean it. And they said something that made their horses break into a nice trot, but mine broke into an open stride gallop. I yelled, stop, wait, help! But my horse didn't speak English. He was having flashbacks, I think, to the days of his youth and reaching for gears he hadn't accessed in years. And I knew it was bad when we caught up and passed right by Paul and the man whose voices I couldn't hear, but whose faces of shock communicated, what are you doing? My horse was on a dead course headed straight towards a large tree with low hanging branches. Oh, not low enough to bother him, but low enough to clobber me in a sight that was not pretty, but lying there in shock on the ground with both ears ringing and a right eye watering from a scratch in my cornea, I realized, <laughs> well, at least that's over. Horses, see, they only respond to one thing the bit in the mouth attached to the reins that somebody had better be controlling better than I knew how to. Because if you control the horse's mouth, you will control the body also. Same with a ship and a rudder. Control the rudder and you'll control where the boat's, where the boat's headed. Same with a Christian, James is telling us, if you can get control of your mouth, you'll get control of most everything else going wrong with you. So over time, I've just learned that I, I I've just come to realize there are certain people I gotta stay clear of. It's not because I don't like them, I do. But it's predictable. In no time their tongues will take a negative or a critical turn. And even if I keep my mouth from joining in, the rest of my soul still feels like it needs to shower off after having been with them just to get the germs off. And so I wonder about you. How are you doing at controlling your own mouth, your own tongue. See, this matters, because if you can't get this part right, you know what'll happen? Second thing that James is gonna tell us, your tongue will grow very destructive. Uh, look at verse five. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body, it corrupts the whole body. It sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. See, what he's saying is, you just take a little of this and just that little spark can do a world of damage, something like this. You say, bah, my words aren't that big. They're not that significant. They're not that important. I'm not famous or anything. My, word, my words, they're, they're no big deal. Wrong. I bet any number of us could name a person who somewhere along the way said some words to you that sank in and you've never forgotten them. Maybe. 
It was a great word, a great word of encouragement that still bolsters you and, and still sustains you, but maybe quite the opposite. Maybe a mom or a dad who one night in exasperation told a child, you know, you were an accident, or you're too fat, or why can't you be prettier like your sister, or a spouse that says, I'm out. And you know something? I never really loved you anyhow. Oh, don't underestimate the flaming damage that your tongue has the potential to leave. See, moms and dads, husbands and wives, your tongue, literally, it, it weighs less than a pound, but your words can feel like tons to those inside your home. And even if after you calm down and hopefully later apologize for misspoken words, the, green, the greenery doesn't just pop back overnight where the scorching occurred. It leaves a mark. Yeah, I, and, and I know here's what we do. You're like, what? I, I didn't really mean it. Plus you said you forgave me. So can't we just go on now? Can't we just kind of be back to normal? Probably not. It may take a while. You know why? I'll tell you why. Suppose, suppose I accidentally slam your hand in the car door and you scream and I turn around and go, oh my gosh, and I open the door back up as fast as I can and pull out your mangled fingers. Now even if I tell you 10 times, I am so sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't see you, I didn't mean to do that, and you can even say, it's, I forgive you. But it doesn't just take things back to where they were five minutes ago, right? We're gonna have to do some work on that now. We gotta go to the ER and get some stitches or some x-rays or something. And I know some relationships particularly in the stress of this current climate, that they may need a little ER help as well because the tone of their home has become very destructive. Now, I'll be the first to admit any of us can grow irritable and negative, whiny or fussy, especially when you're fatigued, especially when you're exhausted. One of the best things that Suzanne does for me if I start getting everything's wrong, sort of fussy like a baby at night, she just finally says, Ken, stop talking. Just go to bed. It'll be better in the morning. And I do because she's right. But if morning after morning, you're still in the same place that you were the night before, and it feels like it's getting worse each day, I really want to encourage you. I want to suggest that you give a call to the church and schedule a time to come in and talk, either if not in person with, through Zoom with Pastor Dan or, or Beth or Wayne, or maybe we just move you right on to the next level and reach out to one of the many good Christian counselors that we work in partnership with right here in our community. Because we got to intercept the destruction that's being caused by the tongue. I'll tell you something Pastor Tim Keller challenged his congregation with when he was preaching from this text. He said, this coming week, I want you to just try, just try this. Try for one whole week not to do these six things. Here it is. Don't complain or grumble. Don't boast about anything at all. Number three, do not gossip or repeat bad information about somebody else. Number four, do not run someone down, not even just a little bit. Number five, do not defend 
or excuse yourself, no matter what. Number six, always affirm somebody else. Now you try that. And you know what? You'll discover you're probably not as good at it as you'd like to have thought you were. Because our tongues, they're often unbridled and they can be very destructive. So what's the solution? That's where James is going to take us in the final verses that we're looking at today. Go to, uh, down to verse uh, 9. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, <clears throat> and with it we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. James is saying it shouldn't be like this, but from our mouths come both blessing and cursing. So here's the question. What kind of water fills the ocean? Salt water. Always has, always will. What kind of waters flow in the Frio or the Guadalupe River? Fresh, always. So which is your mouth, fresh or salt? <laughs> That's a little trickier. So Charles Wesley wrote those great words that Lizzie sang a few minutes ago. He's saying, if I had a thousand tongues, I'd use them to sing my great Redeemer's praise. And I bet you've had moments like that where you just were experienced the presence of God and you, and you say, I just, I just want to praise the Lord with all that I've got. The problem, though, is that then several hours later, something bad happens. And if you had a thousand tongues, then you want to curse a certain person or a situation with those thousand tongues. So which is it? James is going to tell us. This is number three, if you're a note taker. Your tongue will simply bring up what's flowing in the well of your heart. See, your mouth is just bringing up bucketfuls of whatever's flowing down here. I read about a man who sat down for a meal together with his family, and first he prayed the, the blessing with the family, thank God for all the blessings, and said amen, and then they started to eat, and after a couple of bites, he started grumbling, grumbling about how bad the times were and how terrible his boss was and how bad the food was tasting to him, and his daughter interrupted him and said, Dad, do you think God heard the blessing that you prayed a few minutes ago when we sat down? He said, of course, honey. Of course he heard that. She then asked, well, do you think he's hearing all the complaining that you're doing now? Uh, yes, he said less enthusiastically. She said, so which did you mean to tell God? The blessing or the cursing? You know why our words go bad on us? Because the wells of our heart take in salt water and they start becoming calcified. You know, when you go to the doctor, they always put a thermometer under your tongue. Why? Because what that thermometer says will say a lot about your health. And James is likewise saying, your tongue is one of the best indicators of your heart's spiritual health. The way you talk 
gives you away every time. What James is saying in this section, he's just really rephrasing what he'd heard his brother Jesus say several times. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what's our action step? Focus on your tongue this week? No. There's something deeper than that. Focus on your heart. If the water being drawn up through your mouth is salty, look inside your heart and figure out what is it that is going on in there? What do I need to surrender to the Lord? Where do I need his touch? Where do I need his healing? James isn't saying, hey, just go out and produce some fresh water and I'll call you a good spring then or produce some figs and maybe I'll call you a fig tree. No, 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 flip it around. His point is that if you are really a fig tree, you will produce figs. And if you are really a good spring, fresh water will come out. What flows out of here is just an indication of what's flowing down here. So focus on your heart, not your tongue. You say, okay, but I can't change my heart. No, you can't. You need somebody who is better, who can come from the outside to transform your insides. And that is Jesus, who being in very nature God, made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant and humbling himself to the constraints of this fallen world. He came in to live that life of sinless perfection that you and I couldn't live so that he could die the death of punishment that we all deserved so that he could conquer the sins and death that we could never conquer. To the end that if we would place our trust in him and surrender our lives to him, he would touch us and he'd give us a new heart, as Ezekiel says. And then, behold, all things old are gone and new things are come. John will say, if you'll let him put his spirit in you, the spirit will begin overflowing with living water. You want to speak words that are life-giving? You want to build people up? You need a new heart. And it's available only through daily surrendering all your life into the hands of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's why it matters, friends. The world around us is being torn to shreds by anger and by outrage. And as a society, we're just, we're turning in on ourselves and words of kindness and hope and life and grace, they're few and far between because our enemy, the devil, is perpetually working to dump buckets full of salt into the wells of people's hearts. He'll take any ground he's given. Many Christ followers, or at least people who say that they're followers of Christ, they're being sucked right into the trap of our fallen culture's toxicity. And though it might not cost you your salvation, your compromised witness could well cost others theirs. Because as one person I read this week writes, when Christians lose their minds, people around them lose their faith. If the words spewing from the mouths of those claiming to be followers of Jesus sound no different, no more measured nor hopeful than the rest of our outrageous world, how will you and I ever become that city shining on a hill full of hope and life and grace that Jesus and Matthew 5 called us to be 
to this world of spiritual darkness. Oh, friends, our lost world needs something more and better from us. And Jesus is calling you and me to be that more and better. Hope for our fallen world. It will never arrive, friends, from the Oval Office. And come January 20th, Jesus will still be sitting right at the hand of the Father. And the world will still need believers like you and me to point to the way of the cross. But when believers come to our senses and clean out the wells of our hearts, let him touch us, then, and only then, will our words of life and love and hope and grace start to unify and drown out the demonic outrage running rampant at present. But boy, if we could get this right, if we could provide to our lost and fallen world the streams of living water that Jesus came to be for us all, we could draw others into the wonders of his grace through the truth and the hope and the life that every soul deep down longs to experience. Faith bridgers, that is who you and I are called to be. And so I say, let's be more and let's be better. Let's call us, let's be who God has called us to be. Listen to your words, yes, but look deeper. Look into your heart and then open it widely to the cleansing grace of our Lord. And do it now, right now. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer is that you would do a, a work in our hearts, that you would, as David wrote in Psalm 51, create in us a clean heart. Lord, we need a new heart and clean hearts because only then will the source be pure and bringing up the pure stuff through our mouths and through the things that we say in text and post on social. Lord, the world is looking for hope. The world is looking for life. Lord, wouldn't you use us, your followers, to be just that? Friends, if you've not said yes to Jesus in the first place, you've got to have that first touch. You've got to have that first um, encounter. Open your heart to him today and say, Jesus, I am asking you to come into my life, into my soul. Change me from the inside out that I might learn what it means to follow after you for the rest of my life. And if you just prayed that, friend, I invite you to just text the word victory to 797979 so that we can follow up with you. Lord, Make us new people. Give us new hearts to the end that our tongues might be pure. We pray it in your strong name, Jesus. Amen.